This morning, we get to ponder what the Apostle Paul says about the unearthly weapons of God's unlikely army. About the full armor of God. I, uh, I googled the phrase, the armor of God. And of course, there's a lot of crazy stuff that comes back, but one of the most prevalent, one of the most prevalent, uh, things that, that you see if you, if you use, if you Google that phrase is these images of, uh, very vigorous looking Roman soldiers who are clothed in the same pieces of armor that Paul mentions in verses 14 to 17 of this passage. And I think that that's a helpful memory device, and I agree with many authors and preachers who say that because Paul was under house arrest in Rome at the time that he wrote this letter, he he knew what a Roman soldier looked like, and he knew what the armor of a Roman soldier was like. But the reason that I don't think that that image is entirely uh, fitting or covers the bases adequately here is because I can say with great confidence that Paul's point of reference as he works through these pieces of armor was not a Roman soldier. His point of reference was descriptions of the armor that was worn by another warrior and the record of that warrior and of his armor was recorded, oh, about 700 years before Paul's day. And we're going to look at some of the places that Paul certainly drew from as he gave us this beautiful description. And what we're going to see is that every piece of armor that Paul references here belonged to Christ before it belonged to us. In Isaiah chapter 11, turn there. I want to ask you to kind of, if you've got your Bible electronically or in paper, uh, turn to the passages that we're going to look at. First, chapter 11 of Isaiah. The prophet begins, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It talks about how, it goes on to talk about how he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And then in verse 5, it says, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness or truth the belt about his waist. The Hebrew word translated faithfulness is from the root word that means truth. And it speaks of the steadiness and sameness of the character of the person over time. Truth will be the belt about his waist. And if you continue in this passage, what do you find? Well, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf will, and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. In verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. You know who the root of Jesse is? 
It's, it's Jesus. It's, the, it's Messiah. You can follow the, the idea of the root or the branch in the Old Testament, the one who is called by these names. And he's the promised descendant of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Jesus is the promised seed of David who would fulfill all of the covenants. So the one who wears truth as a belt around his waist is Messiah. All right, turn to Isaiah 52, verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of joy, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. <laughs> verse 8, second part, they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Verse 10, the Lord has bared, Yahweh has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. <laughs> Who's this talking about? It's talking about Jesus. And if you know Isaiah 52 and 53, if those numbers, if those ver passage numbers ring a bell, you know that the next thing that, that Isaiah, the prophet, flows into is the suffering servant passage about the one who was high and lifted up and greatly exalted, but before his exaltation in the eyes of men, he became despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And this is the greatest passage on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging, we are healed. He was pierced through for our transgressions. This whole passage lays out in advance the gospel of Jesus Christ nearly 700 years before Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled it. So when it says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, beloved, the bringer of that good news is the one who accomplished that good news and His name is Jesus. The good news shoes that Paul talks about in Ephesians are the shoes of Christ. Isaiah 59, go there for a minute. In verse 15, the prophet says that God looked among His people. He saw that truth had been abandoned. He saw that there was no justice and it was very displeasing in His sight. And then He looked, verse 16, and He saw that there was no man. He was astonished that there was none to intercede. In spite of all of God's amazing, gracious blessings upon His people, there was no one to intercede. So what did God do? What did God do? Verse 17, verse 16, the second part, then His own arm brought salvation to Him and His righteousness upheld Him. And when you see the phrase God's own arm in the Old Testament and you see something being accomplished, that's talking about God directly intervening in His creation, not delegating the task to anyone. That's God acting in His creation. And verse 17, "...and He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head, and He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself with zeal as a mantle." And then verse 20 says, and a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression. And Jacob declares Yahweh. And then all of chapter 60 is about 
Messiah's kingdom. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. Beloved, the one who wore righteousness as a breastplate and who wore a helmet of salvation was Jesus. It was His righteousness and His salvation. Finally, Revelation 19. Now we're going forward quite a long time. Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Verse 13, He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. Verse 15, And from His mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it He may smite the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron and He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is the Word that belongs to Christ. That Word... Jesus is the incarnate Word. And by His spoken Word, consider what Jesus has done. According to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that has been created was created by Him and for Him. He created everything by His Word. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that He sustains and upholds everything by the Word of His power. And Revelation 19 says He will judge His creation by His Word. There's nothing more powerful in terms of God's impact and influence in His creation than His spoken Word. That's how God exercises His power in His creation. Beloved, the most important thing that you and I will ever know about the armor that will cause us to stand firm against the vicious, relentless, supernaturally powerful attacks of Satan and all who are allied with Satan is is this one simple thing. It's Christ's armor that will make you stand. It's not yours. It's Christ's armor that will make you stand. When we put on Christ by faith in Him, when God brought us into union with Jesus Christ, He handed to us in that marvelous union the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. Which is exactly what Paul prayed in chapter 1 of this great epistle that God would open our eyes and lighten our eyes to see. The very power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him above all rule and authority and dominion and every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. That power belongs to us. And it's His power. It's never going to proceed from us. It's never going to come from us. Only from Him. And that means that, it means that the strength of your resolve will not make you stand before Satan. 
It means that the strength of your character will not make you stand before Satan. It means that how well your parents raised you will not make you stand before the attacks of Satan. The great sermons that you hear on the radio this week will not make you stand firm and resist the attacks of the evil one. If you're depending on those things to make you stand, Satan has you right where he wants you. And the only way that you will stand is if you turn your eyes away from you and toward the author and perfecter of faith and you trust only Him. It's Christ's armor. It's not yours. In verses 14-17 to of chapter 6 in Ephesians, Paul, then he turns his attention to us. He's speaking of the armor with which we stand. And what I wanted you to see before we look at what Paul says is that all that armor comes from Christ. Now you'll notice there's one thing we didn't mention there and that's the shield of faith and I'll explain why in a little bit. His armor is our armor. Paul says, verse 14, the third time in this passage, he says, stand firm. You remember we saw last week that our posture in battle is not to storm the enemy's castle. It is not to silence the enemy's ambassadors or representatives on earth. Our posture is to stand firm and resist. And God is the one who fights the battle. God is the one who vanquishes the enemy. And He will crush Satan under our feet, but He's the one who will crush Satan. He starts, he says, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. Having, in other words, put on the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That, that, the verb tenses that are used here, that having put on, tells us that, that this is not a to-do list, guys. This is a reminder of what you have already been given in your union with Christ. And so when Paul says, put on and take up, he's not saying go out and find it. He's not saying work hard to get to the armor of God and, and wrestle it onto yourself. He's saying, it's yours. It's right here. It's right in front of you. Pick it up and put it on. And, and yet, so many Christians live as if they are weak and unarmed. This is, this is not a to-do list. This is a reminder of what we have received. And by the way, a little later when he says, take the helmet of salvation and the Word of God, the, the word that's used there is the word receive. Receive. It's, all you're doing is, is appropriating what God is giving, has given. Alright. The first thing that he says, having put on, having girded your loins with the truth. We already saw that the one who wore the belt of truth before us was Christ. It's his belt. It's his truth. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul told us to speak truth to one another in love because we are members of one another. The corporate aspect of all of these commands is, is huge, and I hope that we're all starting to think in those terms. This isn't, this isn't assign, these are not assignments that play out in the individual realm. Uh, they, they start there. 
but, but this is about how we deal with one another. Speak truth to one another in love. That's a whole lot more than saying don't lie, right? God is commissioning us to constantly draw one another's attention back to the truth concerning Christ. And in fact, what does Paul say in chapter 4, verse 20? He says that truth is in Truth is in Jesus. We put on the new man, which Paul says in chapter 4.21, in the likeness of Christ has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The truth that we wear around our waist as a belt secures the breastplate. It holds the sheath that holds the sword. It pulls the armor together. There is a fundamental reality that the culture around us and, and, and more and more pervasively the church itself has, has just bailed out on. And that is that we do not know truth until God tells it to us. And the truth that God tells us is Christ. The world's convinced that we are the arbiters of our own truth, that we determine truth for ourselves. There's, that is the most catastrophic lie that I can imagine. And that's really where everything started, right? God tells us what's true and we replace it. Professing to be wise men became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We don't determine truth, we receive truth. And we who, we who trust in Christ have heard and believed the truth concerning Him, and now we obey it and we proclaim it. The second piece of armor is Christ's own righteousness as our breastplate. Having put on the breastplate, of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ, this, there's a lot of discussion about this, and you don't have to agree with me on this, but I'm going to just make an, an assertion. I don't believe this is ethical righteousness. I believe this is imputed righteousness that's in, uh, in focus here. The, when I say ethical righteousness, I mean the righteousness that is, that is manifest in our behavior now, which is absolutely critical and imperative, right? And Ephesians, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 that God saved us by grace through faith in order that we would enter into the works that He prepared beforehand for us. Titus says that he's, He saved us to deliver us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for what? For good deeds. We are supposed to work out the character of Christ. But But what Paul is setting out before us right now is the armor that enables us to do that. He's, see this, Paul has circled back here to where he started in this book. He has come back to our calling. And we confuse our calling and our commission. Our calling in Paul's writings is whose we are and what we have been given in Christ. Our commission is what we do about that. And so he tells us in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And our calling, beloved, is 
that we wear Christ's righteousness as a breastplate. It is our armor against the wiles of Satan. And that righteousness that that is our armor is perfect. It's done. It's unassailable. Considering the nature of, uh, of Satan's attacks against us, this is pretty important. Revelation 12 verse 10 says, Satan is called the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. I know people in this room who are struggling with those accusations mightily. And I can tell you on the authority of God's Word that Satan is hurling those accusations toward God against you and they're not sticking at all. God is not hearing them if you belong to Christ. Because when God brought you out of the darkness into the light and made you His, He clothed you in the righteousness of Christ and that righteousness is perfect. And when He looks at you, that's what He sees. Satan's accusations against you are, you know, you know who they're supposed to mess with? You. That's who Satan wants them to, to damage is you. And there are too many believers who are crippled by those accusations. Satan's really good at them. He knows how to find them. And they're generally true. But they hold no merit with God because the merits of Christ are your qualification to stand in the, in the presence of a perfectly holy God now and forever. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. My brother Daniel shared this with us this morning. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in grace. We rejoice in the hope, the promise of what is set before us, our eternal destiny. We have peace with God because we have been declared perfectly righteous in the eyes of God on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to us, credited to our account. Satan loves it when we take off that breastplate of righteousness and replace it with the breastplate of our own performance. He even, I believe, he even loves it when we replace that breastplate of the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ with the not yet completed, not yet perfect work of God in us to conform us to Christ. Satan says to God, and make sure it's in our hearing, he says, yeah, Bill Hayden might look like he's doing well in this part of his life, but look over here at this lapse. Tom Wright, he might look good in some respects, but look at this failure. Look at this repeated sin. And you know what God says to Satan when Satan says that about you if you're his child? He says the same thing that he said to Satan in Zechariah chapter 3. When Joshua, the high priest, stood before Yahweh in excrement-covered robes, as unclean as unclean gets, and Satan was chomping at the bit to accuse him to Yahweh. 
And Yahweh said to Satan, He said, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And then God turned to Joshua, the high priest, and He said, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and clothed you in royal robes. Near the end of Romans 5, Paul says, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. That righteousness is our breastplate as we do battle against the real enemy. And as my brother Daniel said, that is a safe place to be. His righteousness is our breastplate and His Gospel is our good news shoes. Verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the Gospel of peace. What are shoes for? They're for getting from one place to another. I love going in Asian households. You take off your shoes when you go inside the house. If you're not leaving the house, you have no reason to put on your shoes again. Right? And when you do put them on, it's to go somewhere. And the whole point of, of putting on our feet these gospel shoes, these good news shoes, is that we're going to go somewhere with the gospel and we're going to share it with other people. S. Lewis Johnson said, the readiness that God gives us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people, that readiness proceeds from knowing that the promise of peace with God applies to you. The readiness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. See, our gospel that we preach to the world is not, it's not, I'm pretty sure that if you trust Jesus, it'll be well between you and God. I'm pretty sure that because I trusted Jesus, it's well between me and God, so I think it'll work for you too. That's not our gospel. Our gospel is that God promises to everyone who puts his or her faith in the one and only Savior of mankind, it will be well between you and God for eternity because you will be covered by the righteousness of Christ and your sin will have been paid in full by Christ alone when He died at the cross. And so our preparation, our readiness for the Gospel of peace is because we know the Gospel of peace is real and we have peace with God. His good news shoes have become ours and His salvation is our helmet. The beginning of verse 17, as I already mentioned, when it says, take the helmet of salvation, the word is, it means receive. Receive the helmet of salvation that God has given to you. Jesus, of course, doesn't need, it when we say it's, it's Christ's helmet, it's Christ's salvation, we're not saying He needed someone to save Him. We're talking about the salvation that Christ alone secures and gives. He's the arm of the Lord who does the, the saving. His arm brought salvation to Him. And we who trust in Him receive that salvation. When does that happen? 
when do we receive the salvation of God? Well, now, in this particular epistle, there, one of the distinctives of Ephesians is that Paul looks at the, he looks at salvation as, uh, as one big thing from beginning to end. In fact, in seven verses at the beginning of, of Ephesians 2, he says that God has taken us all the way from being lost, dead in our transgressions and sins to being raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places where he will spend the rest of God will spend the rest of eternity lavishing upon us the same riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ that he's already lavished upon us and there'll be no end to it we'll never get to the bottom of it and so so we receive this salvation when we first believe but what makes it such a great protection against the wiles of Satan and the deceptions of Satan? It's the fact that it lasts forever. That this salvation lasts forever. And so in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about the helmet. And he says, since 1 Thess 5 verse 8, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. Hope means that we're looking forward to it. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. For how long? Forever. Therefore, he says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. What's more encouraging, beloved, than knowing that we have been given a salvation that will never end, that cannot be taken away from us? That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He said, after talking about the resurrection and the promise of the resurrection, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why is it not in vain? Because you're going to be raised from the dead. All right. You'll notice I skipped verse 16. I'll come back to it in a minute. That was intentional. The last part of this whole panoply of God, when I, the panoply is the, is the English transliteration of the Greek word, but the, I, the point of panoply is it's not just, it's not just armor the way we, we think of armor as totally defensive. It's the armaments. It's the whole kit, the whole set of the armaments of God that He has given to us. And the last part of that full set of God's own armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's called the sword of the Spirit because the Word of God is authored by the Holy Spirit. You guys know, many of you know Second Peter 2, verses 20 and 21. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy came from man, but but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. It is the Spirit's Word. Okay. And incidentally, the word that's used here is the word rhema rather than logos. And the only significance I want to point out to that, they're sometimes used interchangeably, but rhema tends to have its focus on the word spoken, the word proclaimed. The, the word that is proclaimed, which is perfectly fitting because this is all about us doing battle with Satan and carrying the gospel to the world. 
The sword that's mentioned here is the short sword. A rough equivalent in modern combat, semi-modern combat, would be the bayonet that a soldier removes from the end of his rifle when he sees that his foxhole is about to be stormed and he's going to have to do hand-to-hand, one-on-one combat. This is the sword that, that we have to put to use when the going gets really tough and, we, and Satan is right at the door. In our ongoing daily battle, it's very important to us to realize that in this list of armaments, at the beginning, middle, and end, we have the truth, the Gospel, and the Word. God's revelation of Himself, the, the Word concerning Christ, is what this is. It is the greatest weapon. It is the greatest thing that we've got against in our battle against Satan. Sinclair Ferguson said that Paul's not talking here about part of the Word. He's not saying you need some of the Word. He's saying you need all of the Word. In fact, he said, I'm pretty much done with this idea that Christians don't need to know the whole Bible. And so am I, guys. Prophets and apostles died so we would have the entire revelation of God in writing. And if you don't know it all yet, that gives you a a great target. If you find it, if, if it defeats you, if it bums you out and makes you feel encumbered, pick it up again and realize that in this Word you meet the living God and get to know Him. Come to the Word of the Lord to meet the Lord of the Word. It will change the way you approach Scripture. Don't come to it to learn good answers. Don't come to it to to win arguments. Come to it to meet the person. In our battle against the enemy, we must avail ourselves daily of the Word of God known, believed, obeyed, and proclaimed. One last thing about that that I want to say. Many of us here have had the same experience I have, and that is you've known saints who have been severely tested in their lives, who have faced great infirmity and great trial. And you've known some who have crashed and burned. And you've known some who have remained steady as a rock and they have persisted in their faith and they have proclaimed the goodness of God through it all. We, we had two magnificently valiant Virginias that just went home to the Lord and they were both like that. And I can tell you that the great differentiator that I've seen over and over between those who crash and burn and those who persist like those two women did is pervasive knowledge of the Word of God. I skipped verse 16. Promised I'd come back to it. This is the last armament that we'll talk about and that is faith. Paul says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows or missiles of the evil one. When Paul uses the phrase, in addition to all, he's usually at the end of a list, right? But here he takes the in addition to all and sticks it kind of toward the middle of the list. He's drawing special attention to it. This is the one piece of armor that is not attributed to Christ. Don't get me wrong, Christ is the author and perfecter of faith, but Christ never had to exercise faith. 
There are about 400 instances of the word faith in verb or noun or participle form in the, in the New Testament. There is not one in which it says that Jesus exercised faith. And that's because and there, he's, he exercised faithfulness. But the reason that Jesus didn't have to ever have faith in anyone else is because he's God. And by the way, that's, that's a very significant component of the biblical evidence that Jesus, the man, is perfect God. All the flaming arrows of the evil one are extinguished by the shield of faith. Isn't that great? It doesn't just intercept the arrows, it extinguishes the arrows. It turns flaming arrows into harmless sticks. Satan's deceptions, Satan's accusations, Satan's assaults of every kind, Satan's temptations, his seductions, all those, those very sharp, very hot, flaming arrows are put out by the shield of faith. Faith is at the center of this list as it is at the center of our daily battle. The means by which we put on all of the armor of God is faith. We trust in the truth of Christ that God has revealed. We believe His promise that His righteousness has become our righteousness through faith in Christ. We bear His gospel to a lost world because we believe that it is the good news of peace with God. We are protected by His salvation because we know and believe that He has saved us to the uttermost forever. And we take up His Word as our sword because we know and we believe that it is the living and active Word of God that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the innermost thoughts of the heart. John says in 1 John 5, whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Everything that Paul says to us about taking up his armor comes back to faith. It comes back to childlike trust in the real warrior who actually does defeat the enemy. Appropriating the full armor of God is a corporate assignment. I, I talked about this last week, but I want to just mention it again. I'm, I'm almost done. But some Christians seem to seem to think and act as if as if the battle that they have to engage every day is them against the armies of Satan, and that's not what it is at all. It is all the saints of God united in one body, one spirit. One hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, united under one head who is the one Lord Jesus Christ. We are all together with His magnificent power at our disposal, given to us freely as a gift. And it's that army against the armies of, of evil and we know who's going to win, guys. We know that we're on the winning side purely by grace. So, because it's a corporate assignment taking up this armor, when you encounter a brother or sister who acts and thinks as if he or she is unarmed, 
is, is too weak to live the Christian life well, what's your responsibility? What is your calling from God? Remind them. Take them back to the promises in the first three chapters of this book and show them that God has poured out upon them the unfathomable riches of Christ and that He has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and He lacks nothing. As Brian Borgman said, our failure is not because of lack ever for us who belong to Christ. And we have, guys, we have to remind each other of that all the time. Because we all stumble, we all falter, we all lose our focus. And it's up to us. It's, it's not up to us. It is our privilege by the power of God, by the grace of God, to keep drawing each other's vision back to the author and perfecter of faith. Let's do that. Sympathy is not patting someone on the back for denying the promises of God. Sympathy is being in the trenches with them. That's sympathy. Finally, unlikely soldiers are dependent soldiers. You and I are the unlikely soldiers of God. We're not vigorous, battle-hardened Roman soldiers bearing armor. We're more like exceedingly well-armed sheep. Exceedingly well-armed sheep. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3-5. through For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of Christ, of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Those are very strong weapons, guys. Are you and I willing to do battle only with that armor and not with the armor that we bring to the table? Are we willing to be that dependent on Christ alone? The very last words that Jesus spoke to His disciples were in John 16.33 before He went to the cross. And He spoke to them after He was raised. But before He was arrested that night and went to the cross the next day, just before he turned his attention to his Father and prayed the most magnificent prayer probably ever prayed on earth in John 17, Jesus said these last words to his disciples. He said, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Not you, Jesus. You and I are utterly, absolutely, dependent upon Christ to be our warrior, to be the one who vanquishes our enemy, to be the provider of all of our armor that we might stand firm and resist the attacks of Satan. And what do dependent people do? They depend. And what's, what is the very focal point in the greatest expression day by day in our Christian lives of our utter dependence upon God? Prayer. And that's where Paul goes next, and that's what we'll look at next week. The battle will be won each day by the one whose armor we bear. And that's all we need to know about being equipped for this battle. Loving Father, we, we come to You as very well-armed sheep who sometimes just act like plain old sheep. 
And we ask You, Lord, to remind us of the unfathomable riches of Christ that we might live that we might live lives that are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.